I worry a lot about the fact that we have normalized filling your house with always on cameras and microphones that are controlled by you know, large multinational corporations um, with uh, extremely poor uh, internal controls over data flows. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you are listening to the Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture. This week, my guest is Eva Galperin, who is the director of cybersecurity at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which could be argued to be the world's leading nonprofit when it comes to defending digital privacy, free speech, and innovation. As you'll hear her explain, Eva specializes in issues around vulnerable populations, such as the privacy and security of journalists, activists, and people who are victims of domestic abuse. In this episode, we not only explore the issues facing such protected groups as well as the wider population, but we also dig into Eva's thoughts around regulation, the issues created by our blindness to cultural differences, unique digital IDs, online voting, data ownership, and a whole lot more. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into it. Everyone, please welcome to the Feedback Loop, Eva Galperin. So let's dive into it. I think a great place to start then is maybe if we could just have you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do, some of the themes you focus on in your work. Sure. Uh, my name is Eva Galperin, and I am the Director of Cybersecurity at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I am part of a team called Threat Lab, which works on uh, issues that uh, relate directly to vulnerable populations. So the privacy and security of people like journalists, activists, um, LGBTQ populations, uh, people with you know, unpopular opinions, uh, and uh, victims of, uh, of domestic abuse and domestic violence are sort of uh, some of the things that I have I've spent a lot of time concentrating on in the last few years. What do you think your definition of uh, cybersecurity is in relation to a lot of other people? Because I feel like a lot of the stuff you're talking about is very important, obviously, but it's not typically what people think of when they think about cybersecurity. Absolutely not. Uh, one of, the, one of the biggest problems, I think, in information security is that we view cybersecurity as the practice of securing uh, networks and devices, and it's not. In, in the end, what we are doing is securing people, and the, there are people using these networks and there are people using these devices. And the emphasis in information security has always been on um, the privacy and the security of, uh, of people who are thought to be extremely important. Uh, for example, uh, governments and you know, people with power, uh, people who are you know, securing what, uh, what they call critical infrastructure, uh, or they are talking about securing people with money. 
uh, you know, the security of, you know, Fortune 500 corporations or the security of the, you know, social media platforms that we use every day or the security of AWS. Uh, and that's very different from sort of this uh, people focused approach, which I try to take. Yeah, with so much focus on governments and businesses and uh, systems of power, really, uh, what do you think kind of happens for the average person? How does the average person's uh, cybersecurity or, or sense of protection kind of fall through the cracks? Well, the big problem with uh, with this kind of approach is uh, that the average person is sort of pushed to the margins. And uh, it's, it's actually much worse if you are not the average person. Uh, and the the vision of the average person that these people have is frequently incorrect. Uh, frequently, people who are building these platforms are, you know, 20 and 30 something white men living in Santa Clara, and they're building products for other 20 and 30 something white men living in Santa Clara. And they're simply not thinking about the way the lives of people who are not like them are structured. And in that way, what they do is they reduce the lived experience of people who are not like them to an edge case. Uh, the needs of women, you know, more than 50% of the population are an edge case. Uh, the needs of, uh, you know, minorities who combined together actually make up the majority of the, of the population in the United States are an edge case. Uh, the needs of people in the global South who definitely outnumber the people uh, in Santa Clara by a great deal uh, are an edge case. Uh, the needs of people in the LGBTQ community or the needs of, uh, of people in you know, religious and ethnic minorities like you know, the Rohingya in, uh, in Myanmar uh, are an edge case. And when you make these things an edge case, what you're actually doing is you're pushing out the concerns of most of the people on, uh, who, who are on this planet. Yeah, one of the things that struck me as I was kind of preparing for this conversation with you was that point specifically as it relates to early technologies like uh, Foursquare and Yelp and even some of the tagging and stuff on Instagram and all these things where you'd have these like location identifiers. And I had a very like I had to check myself in a moment of realizing that if you have these, like you said, uh, young white men who are probably, you know, and, and pretty safe communities creating these things, they don't think of checking in and having your location shared to the world as a big deal. But if you're a woman and your phone is automatically tracking where you are and you are getting stalked by somebody, now somebody just has, just has to follow your account and they can follow you around in the real world however they want to. And the places that you're going and the places that you're you know, checking in from uh, uh, tell the world a lot about you. I, if, uh, for example, uh, I am a you know cancer patient and I am I am at the hospital, that is telling people something. Uh, if I am part of a religious minority and I am you know at church or temple or mosque, that is telling people something. Uh, you know, where I worship if I am uh, gay and I am checking in from, you know, from a gay bar that is telling people something about myself. And that's something that I might want to tell my friends, 
or that I might want to tell like the other people who are following me on this one particular service, but I don't think might be uh, appropriate for say my parents to know or my school to know. Uh, or uh, I don't think that this, uh, this needs to be you know, public information available to everybody. Um, a lot of the time we think of privacy as, uh, as a sort of uh, on-off switch. You're either private or you're not. Uh, you either live your life entirely in public uh, or you are a hermit who lives on a mountain. And that's not what privacy is. What privacy is, is having control over the information that you make available and who you make it available to. Yeah. Do you think we're really missing an important facet of security here and safety and that we're not thinking as much about these, I guess, like soft forms of exploitation? And specifically, I think of like Cambridge Analytica, um, where, you know, it's tracking all of this information on you. And you're not really being hacked, but now these entities of power have this information on you that kind of make it easier to manipulate you. Well, part of the problem is information flows. Uh, that Cambridge Analytica was exploiting data that uh, users of Facebook did not know was going to Cambridge Analytica. And they were uh, putting it together in ways that uh, Facebook users did not understand. Uh, and the problem of data brokers is actually very severe. Um, and uh, that is an industry that is extraordinarily unregulated, and it is very difficult to figure out once your data has gotten out where it has gone. Uh, my colleague Bennett Cyphers has, uh, has spent many years <laughs> studying data brokers and, uh, and has a lot of really interesting things to say about it. Um, but that's one of the reasons why that's very high on, on my list of concerns, um, because unregulated data brokers are an, an attack on uh, on the very heart of what it means to be private. Yeah. Can you kind of expand on the idea of the data broker and, and their role in all of this for somebody who might not be aware? Sure. Uh, so there are, uh, when, for example, you use your phone. Uh, when you use your phone, your phone tracks all kinds of location data about you. One of the reasons why your phone always has your location data is because it needs it in order to do phone things. It's constantly pinging the cell tower in order to tell the cell tower where it is. This means that your, uh, your cell uh, network provider, uh, your telco, um, has this information and they store it. Uh, they, they log it. Uh, it turns out they also sell it. Uh, and when they, they sell it, they don't keep particularly good track of who they sell it to. And they don't really make a whole lot of effort to keep it from being sold uh, second and even third hand. And so it's possible, for example, if you are a private investigator to purchase uh, cell phone location data uh, from third parties, uh, sometimes in bulk. And that is a tool that private investigators have actually used for years in order to, uh, in order to track people down, which again, is a, a very serious uh, violation of, uh, of their privacy because when you are using your cell phone, you don't imagine that this information is going to be given over uh, to essentially anybody who has the cash to pay for it. This this makes me think of right now I'm in grad school doing psychology research and we have an ethics committee and ethics approval and like our studies with people require a lot of data security. 
it's crazy to me that we don't have some sort of like ethics panel over our data in the tech world. Like, why is there so little oversight happening in an area that's gathering so gathering so much information about people when the institutions and academics and researchers that typically are using this information to do good have to jump through tons of hoops to protect the user's information? Well, because academia is very different from uh, from private industry. It's uh, it's that simple. There's way less uh, regulation in private industry. Uh, uh, and the leaking of people's data is considered to be a much less serious harm in the United States than it is in, say, Europe, where they have the GDPR. And uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, EFF supports uh, some legislation like the GDPR uh, in the United States. We think we should definitely have a uh, federal uh, regulation of, of data flows in the way that Europe does. And uh, right now, we simply don't. Uh, and one of the big arguments that, uh, that companies constantly make is you can't possibly regulate us if you create uh, additional burdens on us, um, limiting how we can make money and requiring us to, to do work before we make money, we'll make less money. <laughs> You're hurting business. Yeah. How do you feel we should navigate that paradigm? Because with these companies, they do make a lot of their money off our data, right? That's probably one of their biggest, you know, even though a lot of their money comes from advertising, that advertising is so successful because they collect so much data. Well, I think the, the first thing we need to do is we need to put our foot down and say that as a society, we have agreed that uh, there are actually some things more important than just making as much money as you can, however you can. That is one of the reasons why we regulate uh, how many pollutants you can put out into the air, what you can do with running water. That is why we have regulation around how you build housing in, say, earthquake and fire zones. We have agreed that you can't put, you know, arsenic in, uh, in our food. Uh, and uh, it's really time for us to start treating data and privacy uh, in the same way. I think that the, the primacy of putting, putting profit above everything else uh, creates a lot of, um, it creates a lot of damage that simply does not get documented. And uh, that, um, that industry pushes back against uh, essentially by working with this, uh, with this notion that the most important thing is making a buck and uh, that all of those externalities are, are not important because if companies are making money, then they're employing people. And if they're employing people, then, uh, then they are basically saints. Uh, and, and that's enough. And it simply isn't. And uh, that, that is even something that we have largely agreed on as a, as a society in the United States. Uh, again, we have regulation around, uh, around how you can be employed, around how many hours you can work, about how you can be treated, about the minimum amount of money that they have to pay you. These are you know, things that we even renegotiate over time. It's not like there aren't any rules. <laughs> yeah, given, given how much controversy there is around the damaging effects of social media, its its roles in election and in, in elections, its roles in mental health, um, and polarization, and all of the negatives. Why do you think that we're so resistant to kind of put our foot down and say, "Hey, 
this is this is not a good model for us. Like this is hurting a lot of people and and probably more than it's helping. Well, that depends on who we are. Mm. I, if you look at it from the point of view of the people who make a buck of you know selling this information, then it's very clear why they're resistant because they want to keep making money and they don't want anything uh, stopping their quest to make money. Uh, and it is up to us to point out that there are things which are more important than money, that there are more important things than making a buck, uh, that there are consequences for their actions, and that is really where government regulation needs to step in. And I am not a person who re reaches for government regulation as the first tool in the toolbox. I have seen government regulation go very wrong many a time. Uh, and you know, one, one of my greatest fears is, uh, is that we step in with regulation and then we do more harm than good. Uh, and there are more examples of that than, than I can uh, then I can enumerate for you over the course of, of this podcast, but just because there are potential pitfalls and just because it might be able to go wrong does not mean that we should not try, especially when we have something like the GDPR already in place in Europe uh, that we can really uh, learn from in order to model the kind of legislation and regulation that could potentially be really helpful in, uh, in mitigating this kind of damage. Are there any policies or ideas that you think would be the most important ones right off the start, like data ownership or, you know, any of the things we've talked about so far? Well, uh, I think that there are there are a couple of really interesting things that uh, that we should keep in mind. Uh, the first is a federal uh, anti-slap law. Uh, right now, if somebody uses a uh, you know defamation suit. Uh, in order to silence you in certain states, you can turn around and sue them for you know, having done this sort of strategic litigation in order to shut you up. Um, but it's, uh, it's not federal. And so having a, uh, a federal anti-slap statute would be extremely helpful because then suddenly uh, this sort of behavior would not be dependent on what jurisdiction you're located in. Um, so that's one thing that I think would be really important. Um, one thing that I also think is really important is that uh, this, is, this is sort of the opposite of legislation. I spend most of my time advocating for people not to make laws. Uh, and that's that the, uh, the US government is constantly uh, under pressure from the FBI and, uh, and local law enforcement to backdoor encryption. And for many years, we were told that it was necessary to backdoor encryption in order to prevent terrorism. Uh, we did not backdoor encryption and uh, or end-to-end -end encrypted messaging uh, and uh, somehow uh, managed not to all be killed by terrorists. Um, and when the sort of uh, war on terror rhetoric was failing to, uh, to catch on, uh, they simply switched to, we need to protect the children. We need, uh, we need to protect uh, kids from child predators. And so we need to be able to see everybody's end-to-end -end encrypted messages. And this is sort of the big push that we are seeing now. Uh, this is a fight that, uh, that we're currently fighting with Apple because uh, Apple had... Uh, reached an agreement with NCMEC uh, to, to do scanning of, uh, of their end-to-end -end encrypted messaging to see whether or not it included photos that were, uh, that were in the NCMEC database. 
And this was all framed as being extremely important for preventing the exploitation of children. And I am not going to roll my eyes at the notion that children get exploited and groomed. Like there, there are real harms. Um, but the real harms of having a database that uh, sort of circumvents end-to-end -end encryption by matching your photos against photos in a database is even greater. Um, because once you create the ability to do that, then you have put yourself in a position where authoritarian governments can force you to aim that system at other databases, at databases of uh, you know, memes that make fun of the government. Uh, or pictures of well-known activists uh, or any other kinds of content that they don't like. And uh, Apple has made a very big deal out of being, you know, sort of fighting for the user and standing up to the US government. But let me tell you, Apple's history of say, standing up to the Chinese government is not great. Uh, all of Apple's products are made in China. And they are not in a position to say, we're going to pack up all our shit and go home. Uh, and as a result, uh, building this system potentially uh, makes it much easier for them to become complicit in uh, some very serious human rights violations. Uh, the Chinese government is currently engaged in essentially a genocide in Xinjiang against the Uyghurs. Uh, and uh, that's not even their only genocide. You know, they get up very early in the morning to get several genocides in. And uh, we are not only failing to keep them accountable, uh, but it is you know, Western companies and Western technology that frequently makes the kind of surveillance state uh, possible that allows them to do this. And uh, I, I, for one, am not interested in being, uh, in being complicit in this kind of behavior. So even if you trust the US government, like do you, do you trust the Russian government? Do you trust the Chinese government? Do you trust the Ethiopian government? Also engaged in a genocide right now, the Saudi government. Um, again, this is, this is all about thinking of the world as being a bunch of 20 and 30 something white men uh, in, in hoodies living in Santa Clara. And it simply isn't. And we need to build tools with the rest of the world and with people who are not like us in mind. Uh, and we need to center their experiences because with, the, the, the consequences are you know, often physical violence. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. With so much um, of the global conversation taking place in these digital spaces with the monopoly really that these tech companies have, do you think there should be some kind of government intervention in terms of like treating them like public utilities? Because that's a big conversation is that is the free speech conversation, right? Like EFF fights for free expression, but there's also all this stuff happening on Twitter and whatnot where there's, you know, censoring of certain types of conversations, definitely things around the vaccine and stuff like that. And there's this big question right now of how much do we just acknowledge that this is the president is using Twitter for most of his communications and yet Twitter is a private company. Like how do we start to reconcile this dominance with our laws, I guess? Well, uh, to begin with, you have to understand exactly what the legal framework is. Mm -hmm. um, the way that the legal framework works right now is um, under the First Amendment, there's a thing called the third party doctrine. So you think that when you are speaking on the internet, when you are speaking on a platform, when you're tweeting on, on the Twitters, 
that uh, that you are you are practicing your free speech, and that's not true. Uh, you are speaking on somebody else's platform, and the owner of that platform is the one with First Amendment rights. Uh, and this is called the third party doctrine. So uh, basically, uh, Twitter can censor its users however they want. So can Facebook, so can Gab, so can Instagram. Uh, they can have any kind of, uh, of you know, system they want and they can censor people for any reason. They don't have to be consistent. They don't have to be transparent. And in fact, boy, are they not. Um, and that is a problem. Uh, I, I think that giving platforms the flexibility to choose uh, what kind of platform they want to be and what kind of communication they want to foster is fine. Um, but I do think that they need to be held accountable and that they need to be consistent and transparent in the ways that, uh, that they apply these rules. Because one of the biggest problems that we have seen again and again is that um, these rules are applied differently in the United States than they are in, say, Myanmar. Uh, that these rules are applied differently to uh, Israeli Jews than they are to Palestinians in the occupied territories, or that they are applied differently uh, to you know, Chinese people in Xinjiang than they are to you know, people in the Chinese diaspora. Uh, and that that is a very serious problem. Um, pushing for transparency and consistency in these companies is really important. Um, I also think that some of these companies have uh, reached a point where they are so large and that, that it is not possible for them to do moderation mm -hmm. at the scale that they need to do it. Uh, this is not a, a matter of nerd harder. This is not one of those things where, you know, if you, if you just throw some, some AI at it, surely we'll be able to tell the difference between uh, you know, good-natured ribbing between friends and uh, harassment from, uh, from somebody else that you know, uh, which could often use exactly the same phrase. Uh, and that, that is not something that AI is particularly good at picking up on. And even if your AI is good at picking it up on it in English, uh, you know, in the end, you're going to need to have some sort of human review and uh, you know, while you can find reviewers in English or French or Spanish or German, uh, you know, how many of the different languages spoken in India have you got reviewers in right now? Uh, and uh, India actually has a, a very big problem where uh, essentially they start pogroms against, uh, uh, against the Muslim population and those messages are uh, spread like wildfire over social media and specifically they spread over like Telegram and WhatsApp. Um, so that is, uh, that is another very serious problem that requires uh, knowledge about the rest of the world and putting resources into uh, a world of people who are, uh, who are not like the people who build these platforms. <laughs> Yeah, is that a big part of the issue here then is the ubiquitous nature of these technologies without being really culturally sensitive to where they're being used? Because 
a lot of what you're saying so far keeps kind of coming back to this theme of like the international problem. You know, we have the people in Silicon Valley who have one very small perspective of the world. And then these things get into the rest of the world and they become entirely different kinds of problems and create different kinds of vulnerabilities and effects on people. Is that international issue like really at the heart of a lot of this? Absolutely. Um, there, uh, there was a study by, I think, was it, I think chain may have done this study in Mishi Chandra's, uh, anyway. Um, so there, there was a study of, uh, essentially, uh, death threats against women online in Pakistan. And essentially, uh, if, uh, if a woman receives a death threat, um, online in the United States, the chances that this person is actually going to come to her house and murder her are considered to be fairly low. Uh, if uh, you are a woman in Pakistan who receives a death threat online, essentially along the lines of I am going to, you know, I'm going to come to your house and murder you, uh, the chances that you are going to actually be murdered by this person are significantly higher. Uh, and so again, this is one of those cases where, uh, where exactly the same sort of behavior in a different context has a very different meaning and has real world consequences that, uh, that our platforms simply do not, uh, they, they don't center it. It's not even that they don't think about it. They do think about it and they're like, yes, yes, we definitely think that this is a problem. If you, if you talk to the people in trust and safety, they're like, yes, yes, we take this very seriously. Um, but, uh, but in the end, they don't prioritize it. They prioritize the experience of, uh, of people who are like them and the experience of users who have money. Uh, of the people who are going to bring them attention, of the people who are going to bring their platform popularity and eyeballs. And that's frequently, you know, not some like female journalist in Pakistan. What do you think about the idea of unique digital IDs as a solution to some of these problems? Do you think that removing some of the anonymity and some of the, uh, I guess, like dark corners of the web, so to speak, would actually improve things or do you think what it would really do is just like stop whistleblowers and make it easier to track activists it's a terrible idea yeah. uh, every every few years somebody uh gets the the genius brainwave that the problem on the internet the problem with civility on the internet is that people are just pretending to be someone else. And they're using fake names. And that is why everyone is so mean to each other online. Surely they wouldn't be willing to do this if it was their names and faces and reputations <laughs> online. Uh, these are people who uh, simply have not done any of the research about how internet harassment and violence works. It's just not supported by, uh, by the science. Uh, or by you know, the you know, systemic observation of the problem. Not only uh, is most of the harassment that takes place online done under people's real names, um, but uh, eliminating the ability of people to speak anonymously uh, or even under pseudonyms uh, eliminates a lot of uh, sort of what makes a, a healthy you know, democratic discourse work. Uh, there is a reason why the founding fathers wrote their pamphlets under pseudonyms. Uh, it, if you are going to speak truth to power, pseudonymity is an extremely important protection. And so when you get rid of anonymity and pseudonymity, what you're doing is uh, you're, you're not actually uh, protecting 
uh, vulnerable populations. All you're really doing is you are taking an essential tool for speaking truth to power away from the people who need it most. Well, and on that same note, what do you think about more of our democratic features moving online then? Like, what do you think about something like online voting? Do you think that empowers the populace more or is that run into an area where it just opens us up to more cybersecurity issues? Online voting is a security nightmare. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's bad. Uh, and one of the most essential aspects of, uh, of you know, maintaining the integrity of elections is having a, you know, essentially a paper receipt. If we cannot have that paper receipt, we actually cannot trust uh, any of our elections. Uh, usually I rely on the, um, on the expertise of Matt Blaze for this. Is a professor who does almost nothing but sit around thinking about cryptography and election security. And uh, when Matt Blaze tells me that uh, you know, essentially electronic voting is a security nightmare that cannot be fixed, I believe him. Do you think blockchain is going to be a, a, a game changer in that regard? A lot of people think that that is going to be like one of the killer apps of blockchain is online voting. I think that's extremely unlikely. And uh, I present as exhibit A, uh, anyone who has ever had their wallet hijacked. Fair enough. <laughs> Did what, speaking of blockchain then, how do you feel about that as a technology? You know, it's, it's one of those trending topics where it feels like everyone wants to use it for everything. Do you think it solves the cryptographic and security issues that so many people are um, concerned with it addressing? No, uh, I, I think the blockchain is very frequently presented as a you know, panacea, and it's not because panaceas don't exist. Uh, having said that, um, money that is not controlled by the government and that is not decentralized is, uh, is a really interesting and powerful and essential idea. I think that it is extremely important. Uh, having said that, I do get upset at how much of the, the discussion around blockchain and how much of the activity around, uh, around the blockchain and cryptocurrencies and NFTs is essentially grift. Uh, it's, uh, there's, there's a lot of essentially just lying and outright robbery, which happens in this um in this area, there are a lot of Ponzi schemes which are happening. And it saddens me because it is a technology with so much potential and uh, that has the, the potential to bring something really important to the table. And it's just being drowned out by charlatans. Yeah, you mentioned uh, nerding out more as a solution to things. What about the role of artificial intelligence in all of this? Do you think artificial intelligence is going to be an improvement for cybersecurity? Do you think it's going to be make things worse? I don't think we've even achieved human intelligence. <laughs> um, 
again, I don't think that just sprinkling AI on something or saying we're going to fix this with machine learning fixes our problems. Uh, I, I think that uh, AI has some really interesting applications and I have seen it actually fix some, some problems and you know, move the needle on, on some intractable problems. Um, but the notion that it's going to fix everything is ridiculous. And uh, in the end, you need someone to, to check the work. Uh, and in the end, you need somebody to, you know, uh, especially in security, the idea that you're going to replace your security team with AI or with machine learning. In the end, somebody has to look at your, you know, at the uh, at the console. Somebody has to interpret all of those messages that uh, that your AI is sending. Uh, someone has to understand how to use the machine, and uh, you're never going to eliminate the need for people who can have. A, a deep and nuanced understanding of what is happening in systems. Well, with the importance of <clears throat> humans as a stopgap, it sounds like uh, in technology and in cybersecurity, how do we reconcile that with what we were talking about before with the idea of the scale growing so large that it's basically impossible to moderate? That seems like a really tough juxtaposition that we have to navigate right now. You're not going to get moderation on a global scale. You're simply not. Uh, it, and that is one of the reasons why these platforms are simply too big, uh, and one of the reasons why they uh, could really benefit uh, from from being broken up. Um, I mean, it probably will not be a benefit to them. They're not excited about being broken up. Uh, but it would be a great benefit to users, especially users whose experiences are not currently centered um, uh, by, by these companies, if these companies were broken up. Uh, and if some of that breakup was uh, was geographic. It would also really benefit these companies to hire more, you know, a more diverse staff from different parts of the world who can bring them different perspectives. Uh, and I think that that has been a, a really serious um, a sort of oversight in the executive suites of these companies. Well, with so much increasing complexity that's taking place in this area are specifically with the technology i guess do you think things are becoming more vulnerable then um like i think about the internet of things the large variety of compatibility issues that could arise between different softwares and hardware and it seems like there's more and more opportunities for vulnerabilities to exist in the gaps between these things is that being standardized and fixed or does it seem like that's actually a growing problem I worry a lot about the about the connected home. Um, I worry a lot about the fact that we have normalized filling your house with always on cameras and microphones that are controlled by you know, large multinational corporations um, with uh, extremely poor uh, internal controls over data flows and a tendency to get compromised by you know, both state and non-state actors. I think that, that we're building up these huge uh, pools of information about ourselves and about our daily lives that we're not even aware of and that we absolutely do not have control over. And that, no, that's absolutely not getting better. Uh, there is an organization called We Are the Cavalry that uh, is actually doing a lot of really interesting work in terms of um, 
improving the security of, uh, of internet connected things. And uh, I think that their work is really great. And I'm glad that they have prioritized this because one of the big problems that we have right now is that the internet of things is made up of very cheap things. And those cheap things are often not secure. And uh, even worse, they're often designed in such a way that if somebody discovers a security flaw, it is impossible to patch. So, uh, I, hello, my name is Eva Galperin, and I am here to scare your pants off. <laughs> well, on that note, what are some recommendations that you have for the average person? What are some things that are the common uh, mistakes people make or some defenses that people can implement if they do feel vulnerable or if they do feel like they're in trouble or if they just want to take control of their, their data and their, I mean, their the life? Most... The most basic data hygiene, the the wash your hands of the internet is, uh, you know, have strong and unique passwords, use a password manager, use the uh, uh, highest level of two-factor authentication that is available for each of your services and that you're comfortable using because if it is a, a 2FA that, uh, that you're always going to work around, then you haven't actually helped yourself any. Uh, if, if you don't know what to do with like a, a YubiKey, then uh, you, if you're just going to lose your YubiKey, all you've done is lock yourself out of your account. So like, be honest with yourself. Uh, generally, take your security updates, you know, take your vitamins, eat your greens. <laughs> Make sure that you are benefiting from the work of these security companies when they uh, when they find uh, vulnerabilities and uh, allow them to come and patch them for you. Uh, I I think that those are really the the two most important things. So you want to you want to secure your accounts and you want to make sure that you take your security updates. But also uh, just think think like an attacker. Think about uh, you know what your attack surface looks like. Uh, think about whether or not you have filled your house with, uh, with microphones that you don't control or cameras that you don't control. Think about who might have control over them. Think about what they might do with this sort of thing. And for some people, the answer is having cameras and microphones all over my house is worth it to me. This is a trade-off that I am willing to make. And for some people, the answer is now that I think about it, how about I get rid of that echo? Well, what are your hopes moving forward with uh, with cybersecurity? Are there any aspects of the field um, that you would like to see more attention paid to or that you think we're paying too much attention to? I think that we fetishize O'Days. Uh, I think that there is way too much attention paid to the highest levels of uh, sophistication of attacks uh, when most people are compromised through uh, security vulnerabilities that we already know exist, uh, or as we call it, old day. And uh, I, I think that there is a fetishization of, uh, of the new and the you know and, and of high levels of sophistication, whereas uh, even most state actors are engaged in extremely unsophisticated attacks. You know they still do you know phishing and watering hole attacks and all kinds of stuff that we're extremely familiar with. And uh, so I think that it's really important for cybersecurity to also wash its hands and eat its vegetables and take its vitamins. Um, but also I think that it's really important for cybersecurity to start. Uh, refocusing uh, not on how we can serve power 
and how we can sort of maintain the status quo and serve the people who, are, who already have money, who already have power, who are already entrenched, but how we can actually use technology as a force for good in order to level the playing field and to give voices to the people who are largely marginalized. Um, because I still believe in in the power of technology. In some ways, I'm, I'm just, you know, still, a, I, I'm a bit of an optimist uh, in, in that I think that technology still has the power to change the game. And I think that uh, giving, uh, you know, communication and voices to people who had previously been silenced is a really powerful idea. Yeah, fair enough. Well, as we come towards the end here, um, is there anything you're working on or that the EFF is working on um, or anything you'd like to point our listeners to uh, just to let them know? Well, uh, one of the things I'm working on is the Coalition Against Stalkerware. Uh, the Coalition Against Stalkerware is a coalition of 40 different organizations all over the world, including academics, uh, security companies, and uh, the uh, domestic violence uh, support practitioners, the people who work directly with victims of domestic abuse. And uh, what we do is uh, we work uh, in order to make uh, stalkerware detection uh, much easier and also to find ways to uh, to make you know, just the entire stalker industry's life hell. And uh, we're just celebrating our second anniversary this week. So that's, Congratulations. that's fun. Uh, there is also some very recent news out of Apple. Uh, so Apple had uh, sort of two parts to its uh, uh, to its uh, I think iMessage I scanning plans uh, a few months ago, both of which it had previously put on hold. Uh, they've put the uh, the CSAM scanning plans on hold, and we're going to hear some news out of them fairly soon about that. Uh, but more recently, what they did was uh, they also had a scanning plan for uh, people who were um, sort of all enrolled in the same you know, family account uh, under, you know, um, for, their, for their Apple ID. And it would alert parents if their children were sending messages that uh, Apple uh, thought were um, uh, indecent or, or nudes. Uh, how they were going to recognize them is entirely unclear to me, uh, but they they went ahead and changed this system so that um, uh, children will get an alert if they are about to send something that uh, that Apple thinks is explicit, but that alert will not go to their parents, uh, which which we think is is actually a really big deal for like the, the freedom of uh, of minors everywhere. So, uh, so we, we won a little, that's always nice. Yeah. Celebrate the wins. Mm -hmm. Is, are there any ways that people can get involved with your stalker way or work? It sounds like you have quite a, a large team of people working on stuff. Can, do you need volunteers, re researchers, anything like that? Actually, what I recommend that people do if they're interested in working directly with victims of uh, domestic abuse is, uh, that they contact, um, CETA which is uh, CETA, uh, they, they are a uh, technology lab at Cornell that works directly with uh, domestic abuse. And they take volunteers from the information and IT and uh, InfoSec and IT industries uh, and uh, introduce them to, uh, to work directly with 
uh, victims of domestic violence who are concerned about their uh, about their devices uh, or or looking to escape. Uh, I also recommend Operation Safe Escape. Uh, they're really fantastic, and they also work uh, directly with victims of domestic violence. Perfect. Well, Eva, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. It's my pleasure. Thank you.